0: I um, want to talk about the word, um, start with this word, the word surrender, and surrender really is, the word actually came up in a lyric in, um, in one of the songs we sang this morning already, and the, the idea of surrender, despite what Christians have done to this word, we'll talk about that in a moment, but surrender really is a negative concept. It carries, uh, to actually surrender carries a lot of shame with it. Uh, it means to give up and to be defeated. I have a couple of photographs here that come from World War uh, II. You have a soldier moving with apprehension toward an enemy that is best at them. In, in, in the case here, some uh, German soldiers surrendering to some Canadian soldiers. The hands up indicate a lack of resistance. In some cases, white flags are hastily fashioned to signal an appeal, an appeal to end the fight. Some synonyms that we often use for surrender would be words like capitulate or to concede or to forfeit, all of which reinforce this negative idea about surrendering. To surrender is to rip away my personal dignity. It leaves in its place only vulnerability. I am now at the mercy of the one to whom I have surrendered. It is to say... In surrendering what I want, what my will is, that's no longer relevant. Now, despite this overwhelmingly negative sense to the word surrender, Christians have co-opted this word. They've taken it for themselves and have designed around it a very different picture of what surrender looks like. So what we have created is the smiling surrender of the Christian woman. What we have created is the enthusiastic surrender of the Christian man. That's what we've created. But it's a bit of a false idea. Let's be perfectly honest here. Even if you love Jesus, surrender does not come easy to him. Even if you love Jesus, surrender does not come that easily. We don't surrender smiling. We don't surrender enthusiastically. Surrender is crushing in every way, even for the Christian. And yet absolutely necessary if we're to live the life that he has called us to live. And can we get to the place that we're praying as Jesus prays in the passage we have in front of us today? Not my will, not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus prayed. And his agony in the garden over surrendering, this is Jesus, his agony over surrendering to the Father's will is what we're going to see. And and from that, draw some uh, principles so that we could personally pray. We could personally pray the same prayer. So I'm going to read the passage and um, then we'll get right back, right into it. Uh, Pastor Dwayne's already prayed for us. So this is Luke 22:35 to 46. And he, uh, Jesus said to them, his disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And we rose from prayer. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. To be able to personally say... Not my will, but yours be done, God's be done, means several things. The first of them is this, uh, recalling, it means recalling what he has done in the past. If I'm going to surrender my will to God's, then I have to remember what he has done in the past. Now Jesus is going to lead them into an understanding of what it means to actually believe and live out, accept and live out God's will, and not just our own will. He's going to do it first by rehearsing how God has worked in the past. And if we could just see God's track record, I feel like if we could just see God's track record and always remember God's track record, then we'd be okay in the present and we'd be okay for the future. We'd accept that God always has our best interest at heart because we would have seen his track record. We would understand that God always comes through for people, always comes through for me, and we would see that God always gets the glory, that ultimately the thing he chooses is always best and perfect for his overall plan. But our problem is, we probably have several. How many people have a problem here this morning? Just raise your hand if you have a problem, okay? If you didn't raise your hand, that is your problem. Okay, Among all the problems that we have, our problem this morning is that we get so fixated on the immediate that we forget all about the past and therefore we fail to trust him for the future. So fixated on the immediate. We see only what's affecting us right now and that then skews our ability to submit ourselves to his will. So Jesus is about to go to his own death. The disciples' world is about to be torn upside down, turned upside down. And he's trying to prepare them for that. So verse 35, he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he's hearkening back to a. An initial mission that he sent them out on. Kind of a test mission. He sent out his apprentices to see how they would do. Go out and preach this gospel out in these towns and villages. And when you go, don't pack a bag. And don't take any money with you. Just go. And as they went, God provided for them. They, they, they were never hungry. They had all the meals they needed to eat. They always had shelter at night. They didn't need to provide for themselves in any way. God always did a miraculous provision for them on this mission. And so they saw God working and it reinforced for them the, the message that they were preaching and the mission that, we were, that they were on. And, and Jesus is taking them back now to say, remember that? Remember how I provided for you? Remember how I did all that for you? Don't forget that. God had provided everything they needed all along the way. The reality is that this whole account is taking place in the context of the upper room. And they've just taken the Lord's table together for the first time. That was coming out of the Passover uh, observance. which all good Jewish people would do. They'd always recognize the Passover every year. The Passover was looking back to the past to when God rescued them out of Egypt. The very idea of the pastor was to remind them of the past so they would have confidence in the moment in the immediate and for the future now listen when we forget what God has done for us in the past we weaken our resolve to stand in the face of future traumas we open ourselves up to, to more discipline from the Lord because we didn't learn the lesson in the first place we failed to learn what God has for us. And, and then of particular relevance to this message, we, we set ourselves up, when we fail to remember the past, we set ourselves up to have a battle of the wills with God. Now who wants to fight God? Because you're always going to lose that battle. We have to remember the past. And, 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 and it's going to go all the way back, all the way back. I know that in really difficult times, it, you can remember kind of, well, that's what God did for me five years ago. Or I remember 10 years ago, this happened or 15 years ago, this happened to another person and how God provided for them and how God led their way. And for some of us, we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning, just seeing all of the steps that God took to bring us to a place of conversion and coming to faith in Him. And for me, I was 15 years old, almost 40 years ago. I mean, I remember the time and a place like it was last night, at a youth event in a darkened room. What the guy said, how I prayed. And what God did in that moment to just flood me with an assurance of who he is and, and to know in that moment the forgiveness of my sins and the grace of God. And that becomes this anchor point for me that no matter what happens to me in the immediate of the future, I can go all the way back to that and say, God saved me. And I've experienced the goodness of that all these years, all these 40 years. And beyond that, I know he also handed me this promise of eternity. We have to remember what God has done in the past. and So often, again, so fixated on the immediate. Instead, what we do is we press him with questions like, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why have you ordained this path for me? And in essence, what we're saying to God in this moment is, Why are you following your will instead of my will for my life? Isn't that what we're praying? Aren't we saying to God, my will be done? My will be done? Recall what he's done in the past. Lean on him. And then this, This all means um, also, secondly, preparing, preparing for what is yet to come. I mean, you and I are both standing on a timeline right now. And the past behind us, the future before us, we're at this point in time. We uh, recall, learn, we gain perspective from the past as we've just seen. We look forward in faith to the promises of God being fulfilled in time. Some of them will be fulfilled in this lifetime and some of them uh, not yet till eternity. Jesus had just reminded them of their past mission, how that turned out. And again, he's seeking to build their confidence through all of this, their confidence in God's will. And then he points them, verse 36, you see it, he points them now to the future. He says to them, but now, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. In other words, the old mission, I told you not to take those things. The new mission that's coming up for you You're going to have to take those things. You're going to have to be prepared. Things are going to be different this time. You have to be ready for the journey. And this is, this we're going to see, it's going to require no less trust in God just just because they're making some preparations and they're going to have a few things with them this time. It's going to require no less faith in God to go on this journey. And then, and then this is a bit odd. Verse 36, just as it continues there, see this? And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Do you ever, sometimes you're reading the Bible and you just look at something and go, that seems weird to me. (laughs) Anybody ever? You don't ever want to confess it because then it makes it sound like you don't understand the Bible. But sometimes, something like this, you just kind of go, that seems a little, that seems a little odd. This wise Jesus telling them at this point to buy swords. Now let's keep in mind that this this sword that he's talking about is not um, we we have in our minds these big broad swords that the you know English knights battle with. It's not that sword. Obviously, those didn't exist back then. It's not even uh, the Roman short sword, which is about 18 inches long on the blade. It's like the Kalashnikov uh, AK. 47 rifle uh, assault rifle kind of thing the standard issue to the Roman soldier it's not it's not that sword this is more of a a big knife this is it's more like a, a utility blade it would be like a machete would be the best description of this and they would have kept it for very practical reasons for their provisions along the way. You're going to need to provide yourself. It's just part of a collection of things that they're going to need to have on the journey. And along the way, it's also going to provide them a little protection uh, from uh, bandits that they might find along the way. And so that's what we're talking about here. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. That's going to be important for you to have. Verse 37, here's what this is about. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. This is Isaiah 53, 12. Okay, so this is going back hundreds of years now. This prophecy is made about the Messiah. Here's what it said. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. In other words, a tough time is coming. I'm now going to be considered a criminal. And because you have been following me, and adhere to my teachings, and are my, you know, you, you're, you, you've identified with the kingdom of God, you also are going to be considered a criminal. So there's a whole new day that they're entering into. A tough time is coming. Verse 38, they said to him, look, Lord, here are two swords. We already have two of these. And he said, it's enough. That's enough. That's good. Again, fair to say, it's a bit of a bizarre conversation if you don't get right down to it in that detail, because everything, those who think that this is now, they're weaponizing, Jesus is somehow weaponizing the disciples, are missing the fact that everything Jesus said about the kingdom of God was nonviolent. Well, at least they weren't going to resist the violence that was going to come against them. That when Jesus was arrested and beaten and eventually crucified, that he would not resist that in any way. That his disciples were not to resist it in, in any way. In, in fact, in a few verses later, in verses 50 and 51, one of them, in a, in, in a, in a moment of, of uh, zealousness, pulled out one of these two swords and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus immediately healed that servant and said, this is not what that is about. The reality is Jesus is about to lay down his life. And except for the fact that we think of it in these terms, that you win by dying, no one else in the world actually thinks that. You don't win by dying. In fact, in, in military uh, history... A common motivational phrase that generals would use or officers would use among soldiers goes something like this. And I first heard it from General George Patton, not in person. I mean, I just read it or saw it in a movie or something. But General Patton said it, but, but you can trace it through history. Other commanders said it to other soldiers. It goes something like this. Your job, your job, men, is not to die for your country. Your job is to make the other poor slob die for his. Uh, Patton didn't use the word slop, used a much harder word. It's not in dying that you win the war. It's actually in living and getting the other guy to die and marching into his territory. That's how you win. And here's here's Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to die for the kingdom of God. I'm going to die for you. And so the sword thing, let's first admit, two small swords in the hands of this ragtag bunch are not going to take on the legions of Rome. And again, Jesus says to them in verses 50 and 51, it's not about violence. This is not about an armed insurrection. It's simply that along with the money bag and the knapsack, they should also take along some protection from bandits. And what Jesus is saying in simplest, in the simplest of terms here, is that the way forward is going to be hard. It's going to be harder than it was the first time. That intense opposition to the message is coming. That they're going to go on this mission to places they hadn't gone before. That the mission is going to take them well beyond the the relatively protected confines of Galilee and Judea to parts of the world where Jesus' name has never been mentioned and the message is not known. And really, that's the deal for us too. Nothing has really changed. Accepting and living out the will of God requires a heart and a mind that's prepared for any eventuality. I get that not many people or probably anyone in this room, I would put money that no one in this room is going to actually die for their faith at the hands of some opposition, like physically die. It could happen, I suppose, if things really changed in Canada or if if you went as a missionary to some foreign country. There are literally thousands of Christians being martyred for their faith every day around the world today. There are places where this is very real. But I doubt that that's really what's going to happen in our lives. But what do we need to be prepared for? What eventualities are real for us? The preparation as we think about it, whatever trials we're going to face, whatever discipline of the Lord is going to come our way, whatever circumstances are crushing, the preparation that we're talking about is not about a money bag or a knapsack or or even having some swords as much as it is about how well do you know the Word of God? How prepared are you to face this world and the circumstances that can come? This... Word gives us all the comfort we need. It gives us all the perspective we need. It challenges us in our sins. It it reveals where we've gone off the path. It tells us the story of men and women who have lived for the Lord and seen His rescue and received His grace. If we hit choppy waters, if we hit trials, and we don't know the Word, then the temptation can come hard and fast for us to abandon what we once said was our faith. We have to know the word of God. We have to have a vibrant prayer life. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. We have to engage in worship as we did at the start of this service and really sing and really sing with understanding and and sing with passion that I believe this. I'm singing this to my God. I'm worshiping him in this moment. We also have to be engaged in the preparation of being with God's people and being in fellowship with God's people. I don't think, I don't know for a second how we think we could survive the harshness of this world without the relationships that God has given to us right here in this family. Now we need one another. I can't tell you how many times in my darkest, darkest days the texts I've sent, the emails I've sent, the calls I've made, the people who have come alongside me when I felt I had no strength in me whatsoever and felt like the Lord was leaving me on my own and he sent people who loved him to sit with me. And we need one another. We need this family. To what extent are you engaging in the community in the fellowship of this church? We need all of this preparation for what is yet to come. Otherwise, it becomes all but impossible to say, not my will, but God's be done. And that is the goal of this message. It also means this. Notice this next. It means following Jesus no matter where he takes me. And the disciples were going to be facing intense persecution for their faith and, and for the message they were going to preach. But, but for most here, again, that won't be it. Nevertheless, God is preparing you for whatever circumstances. Listen, God is preparing you for whatever circumstances he has ordained for you. Everybody okay with that? God is preparing you for whatever circumstances he has ordained for you. So after saying everything he said to them already... Verse 39 tells us that Jesus took his disciples. Remember, they were up in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover. He inaugurates the Lord's table. They have that time together. Then Jesus took his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And notice, you could underline this next phrase, the disciples followed him. The disciples followed him. It's such a simple statement. They had no clue, though, no clue what he was leading them into. But they went. I mean, the question is pretty simple. Are you willing to go anywhere Jesus leads you? Are you willing to follow him anywhere, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how painful it is, no matter what you might have to sacrifice? Are you willing to follow Jesus? This isn't new. What he's leading them into, he had prepared them for. If you go back to Luke chapter nine, in fact, verse 23, he had said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, they're still following him. They heard him say this and they kept following him. They've even followed him now to the Mount of Olives. If anyone would come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, we read that and we get it. We look at the word cross and and we attach all of the meaning that we have for the cross. We attach it to that. We immediately think about the religious symbol that we put at the front of our worship center or that some of us are wearing around our necks on a pendant or maybe have tattooed on our body somewhere. We we immediately think of the religious symbol and then we think about all the doctrine and theology that we attach to the cross. We start thinking about salvation. We start thinking about atonement. We immediately think of the death of Christ. We attach everything we believe to it when we read this verse. But now enter into the life of these disciples. They hear this without the advantage of knowing everything we know about the cross. So they hear this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. The cross was a method of execution used by the Roman state to keep all of these territories that they had conquered under subjection to them. The cross was particularly cruel and vicious to those who were being crucified. That's what the disciples are hearing. They're not hearing any theology, they're hearing about a method of execution. They're hearing gas chamber, guillotine, gallows, electric chair. That's what they're hearing. If anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his method of execution daily and follow me. They heard cruel, painful torture. Jesus is saying to them, this is all about denying yourself and carrying your cross and following him to his death and to your own death. With the advantage of all the events having happened, the Apostle Paul would write later to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul frames it all up for us, and he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, this is death to self. This is the surrendered will. This This is what surrender looks like. So this is a this is a long way, let's just admit right now. This is a long way from the smiling surrender of the Christian woman. Of the enthusiastic surrender of the Christian. Here, pick me. I would wish to be crucified. Death to self. Painful. And our fleshly impulses they compel us to fight it whenever we hear it. We, we sing about following Jesus. It's more than singing about it. More than a label that we wear. Following Jesus like this, surrendering our will to him, is a, it's a crushing blow to our ego and our pride. Destroys the flesh. Paul's words, I no longer live. I mean, following Jesus is way more than just belonging to the right church. Just hanging out here with other believers. It's, it's easy when we're all here. We're following Jesus all together here where it's all about just singing songs and hearing a message and, you know, hanging out together and having a cup of coffee and going home. That's this part here. This is the easy part of following Jesus right here. All the pressures of whatever else is going on. You just kind of check him at the door and you come here and just be the church and just sing songs and just have a happy time together. This is the easy part. Walking out Those doors. Climbing back in your car, that's where it gets harder to follow Jesus again. Back in your homes, back in your workplace, back to your schools, back to the pressures and the trials and, and the crushing defeats that many, many of us are experiencing. Whatever you're facing outside those doors, That's where it becomes all about, not my will, but yours be done. That's where the battle happens. That's where it gets real. That's when it gets super tough to pray this prayer. To make this declaration. Not my will. But yours be done. Let's look at this last. What does it mean to be surrendered to God's will and not your own? It means praying, even when it's difficult to do so. I mean, I, the word prayer and difficult in the same sentence, I mean, I just think prayer's difficult anyways. Don't you think that? It, uh, prayer might be the most difficult thing we have to do as Christians. Would you agree with that? I think like probably in this room right now, there's six people who are good at prayer. I'm not one of them. And the rest of us just struggle with it. How many people would give me an amen on that? right? I think that's where we're at when it comes uh, to prayer. And uh, Jesus had actually come to the garden. Verse 41 tells us to pray in advance of his arrest. He wants his disciples to pray. He's, He's going off to pray on his own. And at this point, an unseen battle is actually raging. You go all the way back to, to Luke chapter 4, and of course, there was the temptation. And, and when Jesus resisted the three temptations of, of Satan, Satan left him. And the text tells us he left him until an opportune time. And then at the first part of Luke 22, we've already seen that the opportune time came back when Judas had made some decisions about betraying Jesus, and Satan saw his in and was right back into it. And Satan's active right now. Satan's going to be in the garden. And this unseen battle is taking place beyond the circumstances that are right in front of us. And we're right in front of Jesus and his disciples. This reminds me back to Daniel chapter 10 and we studied Daniel back in the fall. And in Daniel chapter 10, you'll remember this, that Daniel was waiting for a word from the Lord. And, And Gabriel had that word and he's trying to deliver it to Daniel. And all Daniel knows is he's not getting the word. And he prayed for a specific length of time about this. And he's not getting the answer. Well, behind the scenes, God opens up the veil for us to see a little bit that there was actually this like super demon, top demon guy called the Prince of Persia who was hindering Gabriel from getting to Daniel. And the span of time that he'd been hindering Gabriel was the same span of time that Daniel had been praying. And then Michael showed up, right? Like he's one of the Avengers or something. So he shows up. And he helps his superhero buddy gabriel get beyond the effects of the prince of persia and gabriel's able to deliver the message to daniel and and i just use that as illustration to say listen whenever we're praying whenever something tough is going on in our lives there's an unseen battle going on behind the scenes and we need to be aware of that and and that's what's going on in the garden here an unseen battle is raging And in in, in chapter 22, we've already seen what's going on in this battle. You have the determined will of God happening over every circumstance. You have Satan influencing what's going on. And you have human beings interacting with all of that and making decisions. And individual free will or the freedom to choose is in play. And all three are in play in figuring out events and circumstances as we experience them. And so in the early part of chapter 22, what we saw was Judas. We see Satan enter into Judas and influence him. But we see Judas completely responsible for the decisions that he is making. His own free will heading him down that path. And over it all, we see God's determined and sovereign will being enacted. All three in play. And we get a picture through this battle of Jesus wrestling with his own will. We get a picture of him in his humanity, struggling to accept what the Father had laid out for him in his his determined will. And while not named or pictured here, Satan is at work too. Note that Jesus says to his disciples in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And there's only one who tempts. And he says that because he was being tempted. He would later pray in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, here's the the source of the temptation, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his flesh, Jesus wants God to find a different way. Jesus is praying, God, if you could do my will instead of your will, I would appreciate it. However long that wrestling match lasted, he adds quickly in verse 42, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He surrenders. But do you see how hard the surrender was? How hard it was for Jesus and how tempted he was to find a different way. If Jesus, the son of God, who had never sinned, if Jesus, the son of God, struggled with the will of his father, why do we think that we wouldn't struggle with the same thing? Why would we ever think that the will of God should be or could be easy for us? Because it's never going to be. This is the prayer that we find exceedingly difficult to pray. This is the prayer, in fact, that we were instructed to pray by Jesus when his disciples came and said, teach us to pray. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And in the course of the Lord's Prayer, we hear the words. Do you remember these? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth As it is in heaven. Now, I believe when I pray, if I pray that same kind of thing, God's will to be done on earth, I'm perfectly fine with God's doing His will on the earth. You know what I'm talking about? On the earth outside of me. All the rest of the earth, in all of the other people's lives, In all of the countries of the world, in all the things you want to do, in a geopolitical sense, God, in that sense, your will be done on the earth. But in this little part of the earth right here, (laughs) I'm not quite so genuine when I'm praying this prayer. It's not wrong to ask for another way. Let's make that point clear. Jesus was not wrong, of course, to pray. Could there be another way? If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. It's not wrong to ask. But in the end, we have to surrender to the will of God. We have to submit ourselves to what He has for us. That's the part of the prayer I want to pray. In my personal life, what I want is God's will in the sense of personal safety. Lord, keep us safe as we take this journey. I want blessing. I want good things. I want prosperity. I want health. I want the people around me to be healthy. If I got my way, no one would die of my loved ones. That the road would always be smooth and the road would always be easy and I would never struggle with anything. That's my will. Otherwise, if it is to be God's will in my life, I realize that might mean, and this is why I don't really get excited about praying this prayer, because it might mean hardship and it might be pain and it might mean loss and it might mean suffering. And it might mean sorrow. Why would I pray that prayer? I want my will to be done. You see why this is so hard? You see why prayer is hard? If we do it right. So Devastating. But then once Jesus surrenders and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Notice in verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And that's awesome. This is great. So what I understand from the text to this point is I pray this really, really hard prayer. And even though some things are going to happen in my life that are really, really challenging, an angel of the Lord is going to come and I'm going to be strengthened in the midst of that. And then everything after that is going to be awesome. Awesome. Verse 44. And being in agony. Being in an agony. It just got harder. Even with the strengthening of the angel. It, it just got harder. He, he, so then what does he do? Does he run and say, God, you, you betrayed me. You left me hanging here. No. No. He he, What does it say? He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The prayer intensified. The unseen battle was raging in even a greater way. He's sweating. This is a simile, of course. His sweat became like, it's a simile, high school English class comparison luke is really recording here what one commentator said is that jesus is sweating so profusely it was as if he was cut and bleeding that's how much sweat was coming out it was like he was bleeding that profusely he's wrestling down his will he's resisting satan's temptation to not trust god He's submitting himself to the Father. Why would he be willing to pour himself out in this way? Why would he be willing to suffer the humiliation of the cross, which is God's will for him? It's because he was keenly aware of what was at stake, he knew the facts. Of God's plan to redeem sinners, to make a way for them to be back in relationship with their God. He knew that he was the Savior through whom the world would be saved. He knew that his blood must be spilt because he was the Passover Lamb, the the last, the final Passover Lamb. He knew it was at stake. We pray, even when it is difficult to do so, as the followers of Christ, we pray, even when it is difficult to do so, because God's will is exactly what you would desire if you knew all the facts the way Jesus knew all the facts. This quote by Bill Thrasher, I mean, it it hits me so hard, but it slays me every time. God's will is exactly what you would desire if you knew all the facts. Verse 45. And when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says it again because he knows this is where the battle is going to be for them. Pray, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The temptation to go the easier way. The temptation to flee from Jesus. The temptation to reject God's will in favor of our own. The temptation that you and I face every single day. Pray, pray for yourselves that you may not enter into this temptation. Pray that you would be able to personally say, every waking moment of every day. Not my will, but God's be done. Let me pray for us. Father, this is um, typical of these passages in the In the passion narrative, Father, these are hard-hitting messages. And they confront us with where we're at. And Father, I know that it's a necessary word. I mean, I think about all the people in the room who, Father, are really under the weight of trials, of setbacks, of losses, those in the room who are grieving difficult circumstances in their life and the loss of loved ones and father i pray that in this moment they would draw comfort from this that your will is perfect that your grace is sufficient for these moments and father they would be finding comfort in your word in prayer in worship and in the fellowship of your saints Father, help every one of us here. I I have no doubt, again, that we will walk out of this place and be confronted with the temptation to seek our own will and not yours. Father, send your holy angels, send your Holy Spirit to fill us and strengthen us. And give us a firm resolve to believe what your word says. To trust you completely. No matter what the circumstances of our life are. Not not my will. But yours be done.